Welcome to the Tower Hill Church Podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill Production Team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, we are in the middle of our winter sermon series, Jesus is Greater Than. And Pastor Jason is looking at how current events can really freeze out our faith, but they don't have to. Sometimes a paradigm shift can be the difference between peace and pain. And you might be further along than you think. So let's check it out right now. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Tower Hill. Welcome to worship this morning. A very special welcome to you. If this is your first time joining us for worship, I certainly hope it won't be your last. Well, we are in the middle of this sermon series now, really dealing with how do we understand God in times like this? How do we understand what's going on in our own faith, in what's going on around us? How do we interpret things in the way that God would want us to? It's a tricky business. Because there are a lot of things that have us all twisted up inside. And what happens sometimes is the more twisted up we get, the more twisted up about God we get as well. So this series called Jesus is Greater Than is a reminder that Jesus is greater than all this mess that we're seeing around us. Jesus is greater than even the mess we feel on the inside. And maybe this could be an opportunity to let him untangle that mess, to get realigned with him. As we continue through what is a very long winter for all of us. So we've been talking a lot about the problems that happen when you start building your understanding of God, building your theology of God based on what you see going on around you. It is, uh, there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that strategy because not everything you see going on around you is really a good interpretation or a good way or paradigm of understanding God, I said a couple of weeks ago, it's like going, getting the worst pizza you ever had in your life and then blaming the creator of all pizza, right? It, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think if you start with your understanding of God and let that flow downward into everything going on in your life, downward into all the situations and circumstances and chaos that's going on in your life, you had a better shot of faithfulness. And that's really what this is all about. It's kind of like uh, if you were looking through a lens, right? It's like we've been looking through it backwards. Instead of things getting closer and clearer, they seem farther and uh, less clear as we look through them. So if your theology is about building from the ground up, it can be a problem, right? You're looking at the crisis and building your theology of God, and it's getting you all messed up. So we talked about paradigms and how we need a paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift, if you remember occurs when there's a better explanation based on a better interpretation of the data. We believe that Jesus is that better interpretation of understanding God, understanding what's going on with us, and everything else. So we've been posing this question, right? What would cause a paradigm shift then, if that's what we need? What would cause a paradigm shift for a 21st century American? And actually, it's the same exact thing that would cause a paradigm shift for a 1st century Jew, which we've learned through Paul's letter to the Hebrews. And that's this. It begins with knowing who Jesus really is. I know so many people who know a lot about Jesus, but continually demonstrate that they don't really know Jesus. And that's not really a knock on them. I think it's Christians in the church are partially to blame. I think uh, media and culture and the way sort of the gospel and Christianity, you just get a little bit in our culture. So it's sort of like, you know, talking about viruses, it's like you're inoculated 
to Christianity because you're not really listening anymore. You think you got it all figured out. You think you know Jesus, but you really don't. And it makes it hard to hear what Jesus is really all about. But if, if you don't hear it, unless you hear it, you're not going to really be able to follow in the way that he has called you to. you got to know the real Jesus. Just like you know, at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, this is why Paul writes the letter of the Hebrews, is that the Jewish people are going through this crisis, this chaos. Um, their faith is unraveling. And if you remember the beginning of the book of Hebrews, they're looking to angels for answers. They're looking everywhere, maybe except God, because maybe, and maybe you can relate to this, you ever not want to ask a question because you're afraid of the answer? Me too. And I feel like there's probably some of that that was going on then that I'm sure is going on now. I don't want to ask too many questions about God because what if I'm disappointed in the answer? What if I ask all these questions and I discover that there is no God or that God doesn't care? God doesn't care about me the way that I thought. I think they were kind of going through that and it gives us guidance of how we can navigate that now. Uh, so Paul, if systematically, as we've been reading, explains that Jesus is greater than. He starts with angels, but he continues. He goes, angels, Moses. Now that's huge. To say that Jesus is bigger than Moses was a big deal. And he goes on to say, Jesus is greater than Moses. He mediates a better covenant. He is greater than the prophets. He is greater than the high priest. He is the ultimate high priest working for our salvation. And, of course, he mediates that better covenant covenant. The first covenant, as he says in Hebrews, has become obsolete because of this new covenant that Jesus gives us through his life, death, and resurrection. And then we say, well, what's this covenant like? Well, this covenant is kind of like marriage. Sometimes we think about covenant all wrong. We think it's just punitive, like a bunch of rules to follow. No, it's a contract of love. We said it's sort of like the the dating relationship, right? You start with love, And as you continue, it moves toward greater promises, which leads to marriage or a ratification or commitment that is sealed in that ceremony, in that marriage. And then, as a result, you try to uphold that love. This is like the contract that we have with God. God's like, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And... And I'm going to make a way for you. I know that in the first covenant, you human beings were unfaithful to the marriage, so to speak. But I'm going to overcome that for you by forgiving your sins. And then the next question, this is the part that I think we don't talk about enough. Because the next step a lot of people make in their heads is, well, how does that work exactly, right? How does this all happen? How does this covenant that God has become effective for me? How do the promises and the love, how does that all, what does that look like? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. The answer, I don't know, you're probably going to be annoyed with this answer, but I promise you it is the answer. The answer is faith. Like, ah, I knew it, pastor. You answered by basically saying nothing. (laughs) I know, hang in there. Faith is the key that unlocks the door. Faith is the only requirement necessary for us to enjoy this covenant love relationship with God forever. And faith is something that the early Jews, the Jews that 
Paul would have been writing to in this book of Hebrews were struggling with. And I think just maybe there are some folks struggling with faith right now. Let's talk a little bit about what faith is. And I think you'll be surprised at how much faith you have, even if you feel like you don't have any faith. Well, think about this. You woke up this morning, and I don't know, since you're watching this at home, maybe you got up and took a shower. I don't know. I mean, listen, that's TMI. I don't really need to know that. But let's just say, for argument's sake, you took a hot shower this morning. In order to get into that shower, you had to have faith in a lot of systems to work, right? You had to have faith that your water tank was going to fire up and heat that water. You had to have faith that there was going to be power or gas to kind of fuel that and make that water tank work. You had to have faith and the whole electrical grid was going to be working or the whole gas system was going to be working in order for this to happen. You had to have faith that all these power plants were going to be able to produce the energy required for you to enjoy that hot shower. And you don't even think about it. You just believe, you just trust it's going to happen. Because you know what happens like when you lose power or something like that? It's so jarring and shocking. Like, wait a minute, I just turn it on and it works. You already have faith in a lot of the systems that you enjoy on an everyday basis. What's faith but just belief that something's going to come to pass that you can't see? You don't know for certain, but you trust that it will. So you act as if it will. And you probably have a lot of relationships of faith, too, where you say, you know, you could trust me, I can trust you. I know there's people in your life that you would do anything for, and they would do anything for you. That's faith. That's faith in one another. I think people make faith something way more complicated than it is. What is faith that trusts that something is going to happen? Especially when you can't see it with your eyes but you trust that it's going to happen. You behave in such a manner that that person's going to come through, that that power grid's going to work. Faith is just simply the assurance, the confidence in knowing that what you can't see is going to come to pass. And I think we have faith all the time. So why is faith such a mystery to us sometimes, right? Sometimes faith feels so hard. Other times it seems to come easy, but why does faith, faith in Jesus, faith in God, is such a mystery to us? Well, I think it's kind of like my great-grandpa's peanut trick. Now, hang in there. Okay. So my, my great-grandpa, he was quite the care. Archie, great name for a great-grandpa. Anyway, Archie. My, uh, the family that my mom married into, my stepdad, he was one of six kids. And they all had tons of kids. I mean, whenever we had family gatherings in California, I mean, we packed the house out. It's so funny how much food, too, that we go through. It's like they, they now, they do corn on the cob, and they put it all in big, like, coolers that you would take to the beach with hot water in it so that there's a place to put all the corn that's done, right? Tons of people. And the highlight back when I was little was to have great-grandpa do his peanut trick. Now, this is what he'd do. He'd say, go grab me. It's like four or five peanuts. And they had to look like that, right? They had to be out of the shell. Um, and he would just work with the little half of the peanut, and four or five of those. And he would take the peanut, and he'd take one, and he'd like pretend to rub it in his eye, disappear. He'd take another one, and he'd pretend to put it in his ear, right? He, on and on. And you know, he'd put one in his mouth, show that it wasn't there, right? And then, uh, and then he said, take this last one, 
one of you kids, and it was always an honor to be chosen to be one of the kids, go take this last one and go chuck it outside as far as you can. All right. And then what he would do, this is the part that was just miraculous. He would sit there and he'd be like, okay. And he'd make like a vacuum sound with his mouth. And one by one, each peanut would come out. Generations, nobody knew how great Grandpa Archie did that trick. Sadly, he took that trick with him to heaven. I can't wait to ask him how he did it. Nobody could figure it out. We studied. We watched closely. We took notes. Nobody of any age ever figured it out. It seemed miraculous to us, but I'm willing to bet it was simply a trick that he had practiced over and over and over again. See, what seems miraculous is the result of practice. I think the same is true when people have great faith. It seems miraculous, maybe unattainable to us, but I promise you, you can have that kind of faith. You can have as much faith as you want. It just comes by practice. It comes by doing it over and over. It's like a muscle that you exercise over and over and over again. That faith gets stronger. So here's how Paul puts it in our next selection from Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 11. He says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's important, right? Impossible to please God. Why? Well, because faith, then you receive God's grace that forgives you of sin, and you come into a face-to-face relationship with God. That's what pleases God. Anything else you do aside from faith is not what pleases God. God is pleased by faith. You have to have faith in order to please God. So it's not about what you do. It's about receiving what he has done. It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And he goes on to talk about all of these great heroes of the faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she is considered, considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And so he rattles off, Paul rattles off the heroes of faith, because remember he's saying, this is what the ancients were commended for, their great faith. And I know a lot of you think about these people of faith, and, or you might think about more recent people of faith that you see as like the heroes of faith, like Mother Teresa always is on that list. And it's like, if that's my standard, I fall woefully short. And I'm sure that's what 
the readers of the Hebrews were thinking as well. Those are the heroes of faith. How can you equate me to them? I don't have faith in my little pinky as much as they had faith. These are the heroes of faith. We could never do that. I know uh, folks think this all the time. I actually get it in my direction as well. It's just like, pastor, you have such faith. I could never have faith like that. And I think every pastor who's ever heard that just sort of shakes their head and is just like, you don't understand. You, you can. You have to want it. You have to want that kind of faith. You can do it. It's actually not complicated. It's, it's a choice. A choice to say, I'm going to trust in God in any and every situation. Listen, there's no insider secret knowledge if you ever hear a pastor or a church telling you their secret knowledges, knowledge, run. There's not. That's the entire point. It's for all. It's for everyone. There's no divine secret that you have to get this special access to. No. Jesus is the open secret, as uh, Leslie Newbegin once put it. Jesus is the open secret. Even non-heroes like us can have that kind of faith. Well, let's keep going. He continues, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Remember, what were they being promised? That, that kingdom of God, right? They never got to see that. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us, would they be made perfect? So what's he saying here? He's saying, okay, look, maybe you don't put yourself up with the big heroes of the faith. But you know what? You have all the faith you'll ever need when you say yes to Jesus Christ. And in fact, those heroes of the past, they aren't made perfect until they get what you get. That relationship with Jesus we have actually seen what we hope for if we know how to look. We've seen what we hope for. What were they hoping for? God's kingdom. What happened when Jesus came and he lived and he died and rose again? The kingdom of God has come near, John the Baptist says. We experience the kingdom of God when we say yes, when we have faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need that kind of faith. We just need enough faith to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. If you know how to look, you see that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you know how to have new life with God forever. This is the good news of the gospel. That which separated us from God has now been erased. We, with our open hands, just need to be ready to receive it. Through what? Through faith. Jesus himself says, we just need faith of a mustard seed, the tiny little seed that grows into this big plant. 
We don't need the faith of the ancients because we have seen our living hope. What seems miraculous is the result of practice. Faith grows when you use it. It's one thing to say all you need is a mustard seed of faith, but you never never plant that seed, never tend to it, it never does anything. Just carrying around a mustard seed is not going to get you a mustard plant. you got to do something. You have to activate it in order for it to grow. This is the same thing with your faith, and this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying if you want to change your life, if you want to change your perspective, do something. It could be a tiny something to trust and have faith in God. You don't need the great faith of the ancients anymore. You just need a little faith because God has overcome everything. All right, so where do you start with faith? Well, where do you start with sort of putting this mustard seed, activating this mustard seed of faith? I'm going to just give you three steps, and there's probably many, many steps. But I always found that these are just kind of core steps that whenever I get stuck, I go to. And it begins, the first step is simply just confession and surrender. Lord, I am sorry that I have made faith in you such a chore. I'm sorry that I keep making excuses instead of doing what you asked me to do, just simply trusting I confess that I I don't want to be like that anymore, and I surrender to you. It's not just saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I want to change. I'm sorry, God, and I want to make it clear I'm yours and you're mine. Guide me. Lead me. That's always, at least for me, the step of growing faith. Because with that comes humility, right? I actually need you, God, to give me the kind of faith that I'm hoping for. And that's just it. That's the second part is ask. Ask for greater faith. You're going to get it. You ask the Lord for faith, he's going to give it to you. Lord, now that I am submitting myself to you, I just ask you, give me greater faith. Help me to trust you more. I promise he will. And then the third is put that trust into action. Again, if you don't activate your faith, it just becomes a head exercise, which is no good at all. It's got to flow into your life. That difficult situation with your family member, that difficult situation at work, that thing with your finances, that thing at home, that thing with your kids or in your career, that thing that you're not sure about, you're just waiting on God for, trusting that God's going to figure something out. Put your trust that he will. Even if it doesn't turn out the way that you want, that you trust that God's going to turn out the way that he wants. And the more you do that, the more you cultivate that, the more people will look at you and be like, wow, that looks miraculous. And you're like, no, it's just practice. The Christian life is meant to be lived by every single person who receives Jesus, not the special faith people. Let me put it this way. You're the special faith people. You're the new heroes of faith the ones living in relationship with God. You're able to have a relationship that many of those ancient heroes never had by God's grace. So this week, pick one thing. Pick one of these things maybe to start with or to focus on. And then by faith, you will see that Jesus is greater than. Amen.